when you were on the yacht at that time, obviously Versace got murdered. How was Princess Diana when she heard that news? She was looking out the window, so I walked in and I was like, whoa. And she turned around, she was obviously crying and very upset. And, and she, she said, asked me, had I heard about her friend? And, and I said, yes, I had. And, you know, what do you think happened? And I said, well, I don't know, but you know, obviously the police will find out. And I'm just trying to comfort her. And she was coming close to me. And, you know, you just want to give someone a hug. Yeah, yeah. You know they want a hug. Yeah. And she wanted to feel safe. I didn't do it. I, I would never do that, by the way. But it crossed my mind, and I thought, if a paparazzi got a photograph through that glass of this, mm. can you imagine what they would write? Mm. It wouldn't be bodyguard comforts Princess Diana in a moment of need. You know what they would write, yeah. don't you? Yeah, absolutely. And I was like, so I, I'm stepping back, and and she said, do you think they'll do that to me? Welcome to The Eventful Entrepreneur. I'm your host, Dodge, and I'm the CEO and founder of the Bournemouth Sevens Festival and the revolutionary event crowd, our new online events course. On this podcast, I speak to fascinating people who have all lived eventful lives. So if you want to hear more like this, make sure you subscribe, leave us a glowing review, and you can follow me on Instagram at Dodge Woodall. I reply to every single message. Series 5 of the Netflix smash series The Crown is released today and it covers the final years of Princess Diana's life. As a close protection expert, Lee Sansom was once responsible for guiding Diana as she navigated life outside of the royal family. Lee is an ex-royal military policeman, martial arts champion and was once employed by Mohammed Al-Fayed to protect him and his family. Lee formed a close bond with Diana and the young princes and it was only by a stroke of luck that he was not in the car that night Diana died. He has a truly unique insight into the life of the most famous woman in the world. This is the eventful life of Mr. Lee Sansom. Lee, welcome to the show, mate. Yeah, great to meet you, Dodge. Lovely. Very much looking forward to this one. This um, this roll all the way back, where did you grow up and how did you become Princess Diana's bodyguard? Yeah, it's, uh, it's that, that question I've been asked so many times, Dodge, you would not believe. Because, you know, I was very fortunate to meet the princess and look after her. Um, and growing up on a, on a, a huge housing estate north of Manchester, uh, a place called um, Edgeside in uh, Rosendale, uh, which is a very industrial kind of valley, beautiful place. Who would have thought growing up there that I would be look after the, the most famous woman in the world, you know? Yeah. So I think if you'd have told me as a kid, I, I just wouldn't believe it. Being a, yeah, a normal kid in a housing estate, uh, learning the pecking order of how it goes and all that stuff. Um, so I think, you know, I had a normal upbringing, really. Um, there was me, my brother, Brandt and my sister Lois. I'll, I'll say her name so she can listen to this because I missed her out of my book that I've just put out and she's going to kill me when she sees me. <laughs> but I'm, I'm frightened of her, by the way. So, um, yeah, went to um, secondary school, uh, did do that well. I was, I was always good at sports. Uh, didn't finish my exams, uh, didn't attend school a lot during the last couple of years. And uh, it was a great upbringing for me, very exciting. It was very community-based then. I remember when I was young, there was no fences in between the houses. There were kids running everywhere, wild, you know, little gangs of us. Yeah. And it was just an exciting an exciting life, I think, for a young boy to grow up in that environment at that time. 
So what was it? What was it for you then? Were you thinking, right, I'm going to go to the army? My next step for me is to get involved with a community. What was your What was your next movements leaving school? Well, when I left school, I, I wanted to go to art college, uh, but my parents couldn't afford to help me, and nobody in my family had ever been to university or anything like that. So it was a no-go, really. So I ended up working... I got an apprenticeship in a, in a steel factory, and I worked for four years in a steel factory. And I had no inclination to join the military or anything. I wasn't, I wasn't interested in the military. And um, I, I wanted to work for myself. That was my ambition. You know, I didn't know what I was going to do or how I was going to do it. As it transpired, you know, I've got several companies now. But I... I, I didn't know about business. I didn't know about sales. I didn't know about anything like that. I was just a young lad who could do a bit of fighting. Uh, I was very strong um, with working in the steel factory, you know. Um, so it was, I went, when I was, about my time at 20, four-year apprenticeship there, I went in at 16. And I went to South Africa, sorry, I went, I've been so many places, yeah. I went to Johannesburg. Right, so I got gets on a flight. I had a, my ex-wife was there, and we had a, a young uh, child. So I got on a flight, went to Joburg, and landed there. Got myself a job, got myself uh, a work permit, which I shouldn't have done. I shouldn't have tipped up there like that. Blagged my way through uh, to get a, a work permit, and I started working in, in the steel industry in in Johannesburg, and I absolutely loved it. And when I was there, I met this guy, and there was a there was a group of special forces guys that used to hang out in a bar in Joburg, and I got introduced into this community. And there were former Brit Brits, uh, South Africans, uh, and some from um, Zimbabwe. And I used to listen to their stories, and I just kind of fitted in with them. And uh, at that time, I was um, I was quite good at. Uh, Karate, that was, you know, I was on international level. And uh, so I just fitted in with them. I just got it, you know, and I just loved listening to the story. So when I came back from South Africa, my wife, my wife then, Melanie, God bless her, she's a lovely lady. And she, um, she, couldn't, she couldn't stand it there. She hated it. And she wasn't a worker or anything. She was, she was probably just a mum, you know. Uh, I say just a mum. I mean, being a mother is, you know, and I've done it. Well, when Kate's been away, my wife now, and I'd rather I'd rather go and work in Nigeria or Libya than, than stay at home and look at the kids. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's you know it creases yeah. me up. Yeah. But um, yeah. So when I came back, I didn't know what to do, and I was a bit lost really. And I, and I met a guy I went to school with uh, in the pub, and he was in the military police, the Royal Military Police in the you know the British Army. And he, he was telling me what he actually did and all the opportunities and what they did in, in the military police. And I thought, wow, that's so exciting. I want to do that. So I went to the Army Career Centre. And then within three months, I was in the training centre in Chichester and joined the military police. Oh, wow. How many years were you in the military police for? So 10 years. I spent 10 years and 10 amazing years. Not too, not too good at the end. Uh, I think I'd just grown out of it, you know. Yeah. But I uh, I had some really cool jobs, did some great things, met some great people, and had a fantastic time. And and within that ten years, just just tell me what the difference is between the police and the military police. So the the difference really, it, there there are a lot of similarities, but 
the 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 Royal Military Police police the the army, right? And 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 that's that was you know, and that still is our job. And unlike the police here, we kind of it's, it's a strange setup really to get your head around it. So we kind of worked and still work for the the colonels and the brigadiers that, that run it. So if something was to happen in, say, say an infantry regiment, and there's a crime or, you know, the lads fighting up the town and stuff, you, you know, you, you would make a report and you give it to their colonel right, and okay. he decides what to do. Okay. He dishes out the punishment. It could be nothing. Uh, it could be something, you know. Yeah. And, and usually, because of the, 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 the discipline in the military and the soldiers know that if they go up in front of their colonel, they've got big problems. Yeah. <laughs> and it's gonna it's either gonna cost them in the in, in the pocket or they're gonna have to work hard to to make it right. Yeah. So generally, you know, all the abuse and stuff you see the police get in. Yeah, I've got so much respect for our police force, you know, the stuff they have to put up with. I could never do that job. But in the military police, I've been to some really scary incidents, you know, brawls and all sorts of stuff. Yeah. And and you know, I've never had any problems with the soldiers, you know, they're a bit rough and tough, but You've got a soldier's head at that time, so you are rough and tough. Yeah, right. You know, so, so uh, yeah, I've always found uh, the soldiers. And mind you, as well, you know, Dodge, it could be my mindset as well, because I wasn't officious or official. You know, if, if the lads have been fighting and that, I'd say, come on, jump in. I'll, yeah. I'll take you back to camp and drop you off. <laughs> you know, so I kind of got known when I was doing that kind of role. I did that role for a couple of years in Germany in one of the biggest... Uh, garrisons in the world a place called Senelaga so those soldiers from all over the world would come there and they would fight like mad yeah. mate yeah I bet it was insane and then we had the Northern Ireland training centre there so the troops used to come over and train for Northern Ireland it, we used to call it Tin City on the ranges so you'd have infantry battalions and all sorts of um, units coming through. So they'd take them up there and they'd do the training. At one stage, they were losing maybe 25% of the men on training. Wow. It was vicious, man. Wow. So we'd go up sometimes and just play uh, play the, you know, the the people that they were likely to meet in Northern Ireland, you know, just crowds throwing bottles, uh, stones, petrol bombs. It was really, really vicious stuff. Yeah, and they used to get, so they get a, an infantry battalion in or somebody in, and they get them in the, they get them drunk, and then take them up there and just let them go. <laughs> it was insane. <laughs> and as a young man, you yeah. can imagine. How old, you know, roughly? Roughly, how old were you back then when you first well, went I, into the I, uh, police military? I, I went in into the military police at uh, 23, Gentle. which at, at the time I was the oldest recruit bar one in my squad oh. of 50, I think it was 54 in my squad. And I think there was 12 of us passed out. Yeah. So there's a big drop off rate. And I think the, the mentality then, and it's changed slightly now. The mentality then was, you know, we're going to try and fail as many as we can. Yeah. And that's what they did. And yeah. that was, you know, it was, it was, uh, it was an interesting experience going through basic training. Yeah, you know? I bet. So you had ten, you had ten good years in there. What was the next step for you? What made you want to leave there and move on to your next part of your journey? Well, it, it come, I got divorced, uh, separated from my wife, and uh, the, the the next job I went I wanted to go on. I was in Hong Kong, uh, working with the Gurkha Brigade on the Chinese border. And then my wife came back with the kids and I was uh, I was supposed to go back out to Northern Ireland. I'd served two years there doing some really cool stuff. 
and I was I was due to go out there with this with this unit, and I was told because I'd split up for my wife, I couldn't go for another twelve months, eighteen months, you know, because mentally, you know, when you're going through that, you are a bit unbalanced. But I, I thought I was okay, but I just couldn't do it, and I had my heart set on that, so I I left. Uh, to go on to other things, and I didn't really know what, but I just knew at that time, working in a, a normal military police unit in in uh, Donington, near Telford, I just thought, yeah, I was just so bored. I, I left and, and went into sales, mm. of all things. And so I went into sales, selling insurance, and I was like the top salesperson for six months and I could, I smashed it yeah. and I hated every minute of it. And, Stuck and in an office? Was, no, I was out. Oh, I was out on the road with you? Yeah, yeah, knocking on doors, all yeah. sorts of stuff. I could just do it. I just, yeah. could just get on with people and, uh, but I didn't like it. I just, I didn't like the life. I didn't like the, the routine. Um, it just wasn't for me. And I was determined not to go into um, security or anything. So then I went, worked in, a, in another steel factory. Hold on a minute. I went why, to, why, why, just roll back a bit there. Why were you determined yeah. not to go into security? I, th- I think after, after being in the military and I saw some of the, the guys who had gone into security, I thought, right, I need to have a break because I want to work for myself. And I didn't know, I still have this driving passion to have my own business. And, and you know, you know, like yourself, you know, Dodge, you, you know, if I don't work hard, I don't earn money. I've got yeah. nobody to blame but myself. And I wanted that real responsibility to, to want to make money. I didn't know how or, or what in. And and I wanted to, uh, I wanted to do something that added value to people's lives. Yeah. I wanted that feeling, but I just didn't know what it was. So I tried the insurance uh, that didn't work. I, I went to a, a seal factory, and I, because I was a, a time served skilled guy, and, I, and when I and this was probably uh, 1995, 96. A lot of the apprenticeships had been stopped by then. Yeah. So I went in, and within a couple of weeks, it offered me the the manager's job because of my skill level. Mm. And and after ten years, I was you know super skilled compared to the other people, and mm. they're nice guys. And I thought, no, I can't do that. And then somebody at my, at my last unit, my military unit, um, I just I saw them out and they said, oh, uh, there's, they're looking for security people on the Mohammed Al-Fayed team. So I got the name of the guy that was in charge there and uh, I used to work with him. So I gave him a call, went down to London and got the job straight away and and that was me in. Wow. So Mohammed Al Fayed, who owned Harrods, you went in, did you yes. meet him at Harrods? Uh, I, I lived with him and his family for four years. Is that right? Yeah, it's an amazing oh, wow. time, Dodge. Wow. And do you know when you, you, know you meet someone, there's a lot of stuff about Mohammed Al Fayed yeah. and, and his family. Bad news sells, right? Yeah. And all that stuff. But he was, he was a great guy. I got on with him. And his family really well. I still speak to his family. Yeah. Uh, and working for him, he he had various uh, things in his business that he did. Not only Harrods, but all, he had all sorts of stuff going on. He he had the F1 McLaren team at one stage, yeah. and he run that. You know, I've actually sat in the cars. 
you know, I used to love sitting in these cars. You've collected cars, the, the most beautiful cars from all over the world. And uh, I'm going around with him and watching him as the attention to detail. Yeah. It was insane yeah. to see a man with all those businesses that he had. He'd walk through Harrods and he'd spot a bit of dust. Yeah. I'm like, how did you see that? Yeah, yeah. Get the manager over. When he called the manager over, the managers would shit themselves. <laughs> yeah. Because so he didn't take any prisoners. Yeah. You say you live he with him. Me. Did you actually live in his house or was it outside no. in a separate house? No. or How did it work? No, we, so in this is how it works with these high net worth individuals. So they'll either have security accommodation within the estate uh, or they'll have it in the, their homes. If if they're not rich enough, they don't have it. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it's, uh, you know, when they look at clients and, and there's no security accommodation, you think, I don't think they've got enough money. money. <laughs> but, uh, so, um, but yet, um, say for example, in his villa in Saint-Tropez, um, th- there was, I think it's like three or four houses on there of, of different types. And we had our own security accommodation built underneath the, the tennis courts. Yeah. Uh, and he used to look after his security really well. Wow. Loved his security yeah. team. He was harsh, harsh guy. Yeah. Expected the best, paid the best. And if if you didn't uh, toe the line or you screwed up, you were gone mm. instantly. What did he yeah. do? Did he did he put you did he put you on a salary or did he put you on a day rate? No. So on that job, we were we were salaried. We worked six months of the year. Yeah. And we were salaried, and then obviously. Uh, with all the bonuses and all that kind of stuff, clothing allowance. Um, and he, he used to really look after him. My last role for him, I was up on his Highland estate just after the princess died. And, and there was, you know, you can imagine the family went through with, with Dolly, their son dying. And and it was just, we, we moved around a bit, the security team and, and all the press and the paparazzi. So I went up to his Highland estate. He has a castle in the Highlands, then further north, he's got a big hunting and fishing estate. So I was like the Tom Selleck of, of the Highlands, mate. <laughs> so I was just living there with, with my boy, um, Damon, and uh, who was, I think, 10 or 11 at the time. I got him up. My, my ex-wife was struggling with him a bit. He was going a bit, mm. going a bit mad, as boys do at that mm. age. So he came up stay with me, and um, I just lived up, up there. And just, I was his eyes and ears, really. Yeah. If he wanted anything, he could call me, Lee, what's going on? Or he might ask me to do stuff. So I didn't really, I didn't have a job. Yeah. So I was hunting, fishing, helping Lovely. the farmers, doing stuff in the community. So he, he paid my rent, my fuel, my clothes bill, my car, my phone, my food bill. Everything was paid for. Wonderful. And then he paid me as well. So why, why I left that job, Dodge, I will never know. Yeah. So, so rolling back, rolling back a bit. When did you first get to meet Dodi, his son, and obviously Princess Diana and uh, the two princes, Harry and William? Right. So Dodi, I met Dodi. You know, I worked with the family at that time for about three years. So I met Dodi loads of times. Uh, you know, I'd driven him, I'd been out looking after him. Uh, although he had his dedicated bodyguard, we would all step in if you know if we were a bit short-staffed or yeah. something was happening. So, and then I met Diana in Saint Tropez on her holiday before she died. So where that, she was was that summer of ninety-seven? It was, yeah, summer, yeah. Okay. And that's where you first met her on, the, on 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 a yacht, on a boat, or in a hotel. Yeah, well, well, when she came, I, she came to the villa. She was coming out there before I went. Out. I think I've been out there for two weeks before I've been home for a couple of weeks. Came out. I knew she was coming out. 
So when she got on the tender on the on the small boat that came from the the Johnny Cole, it's a two hundred foot super yacht he had. Wow, beautiful thing. Do you know how much it and, was? Uh, I think I think I, I think we're spending the stuff with the money spent. I think it's about thirty six million at the time, ninety seven. Back at the back in the day, that's uh, twenty five years ago. That's, that'd be a fortune today. I know. It was a fortune back then, really. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that was just one of his boats, yeah. by the way. <laughs> You know, it's serious, man. He had one for you, Lee. Um, one for everyone else. Well, yeah, yeah. I'm still waiting for my ball. I don't think I'm going to get it. Like, what was that uh, feeling came, like? On, what was that board. feeling like for you, knowing that you're going to the Princess Diana is coming onto the boat, and you're going to be looking after the most famous woman in the world? I, th- I think, yeah, at the time, you know, um, because we had a lot of people that came to see the Fired family, rich and famous, all kinds of people. So we're used to having these people coming around. And, and the first thing I thought is, right, this is going to be busy. Yeah. Shit, yeah. we're going to be knackered. <laughs> you know, and then, so it, it didn't it didn't phase me at all, at all. I didn't tell anybody, you know, family, nobody knew. And, and, and the security team told nobody, because obviously, you know, when you, I don't work in the industry anymore, but when you do, you've got to be careful what you say. Yeah. So when she came, um, it was... I think it was just another day at the office, man. Yeah. You know, I know some of the lads, some of the bodyguards, and, and I, I say this: I teach courses all over the world now, and all sorts of stuff. And and uh, I say to them, you can't buy into who you're you're looking after. You, you you've got to keep your head on. You can't do your job, you know. And mm-hmm. some 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 of the lads and girls, it just overwhelms them that much. And then they start having an opinion on people, and then they start you know judge being judgmental, and and it just doesn't work in this industry. You know, you're there to do a job don't like it leave mm. uh and if you do get uh, emotionally involved in what's going on you can't do your job you've got to leave yeah you know now what was your day-to-day what was your first thing obviously to protect her but there must have been lots of paparazzi flying around in boats and all sorts oh it's mad yeah the my daily routine so when you're doing your close protection it's it's you know you have a lot of routine and you try and break routine yeah because patterns create opportunities for people yeah. to to do whatever that yeah. they want to do. So so it's a bit of a, you know, you need routine, but you've got to break your routine. So the routine would generally be, I would say, up about half five in the morning, go out for a run or get, you know, do some training in the gym and then get all, get everything ready for the day. And then my role on that job, I was Mohammed Al-Fayed's bodyguard. I wasn't on his personal team and he told me, he says, right, on this holiday, you go and look after the princess and the, and the children. I want That's your job. So there was, there was about four or five of us who were on that detail and me being one of the senior ones because I've been with him for a while. And I would get up and then we would go, you know, just have breakfast with your team and talk about what you're going to do in the day and what was planned and review what you're going to do. Uh, if you needed to go out and do some uh, reconnaissance on something, you know, one of the lads would go out and, and we'd... we'd We'd figure out what we were going to do that day, knowing full well the plan's going to change at any minute. And then uh, get get. And so I'd, I'd go down to the boat house on the beach, and we'd set the beach up for all the family to come down whenever that would be. It's generally after after lunch, and uh, so we get all the toys out, jet bikes, all the you name it, we had it, uh, and get everything ready, and obviously check the area to make sure you know there was nothing out of order there. Mm. 
there's no listening devices or you, you just try and do your best, you know, and just sweep the area. And then the princess would come down early in the morning. She was, uh, you know, and she'd sit down and sometimes she'd have a, a coffee with her and she'd sit down on these steps by the boat house that you couldn't actually see from the, the sea. And we'd just chat. And she'd come down and chat for ages, you know, yeah. and then and then off she'd go and get ready for the day. And we would just wait for people to come down and we'd look after them or we'd, we'd get on the boat and go where they're going to go and look after them. And as the day wound up, the family would generally go and have a meal and things like that. Then we'd get changed into our nighttime um, clothes and then we'd go out and do what we needed to do. Mm. So you could be out till two in the morning, three in the morning, yeah. repeat, repeat, yeah. repeat. And it's long days, man, on that job. But fantastic experience. And what was Princess Diana like as a, as a personality? You know, when you meet people and they have this real vibe and you just get it. Yeah. And you can understand that it would scare people. Yeah. And she was, she was, um, she was, very, uh, she was very humble. She was very honest. Um, she was a lovely woman, full of fun. Loved her boys to bits. Yeah. And, and and I was talking to her ex-butler, Paul Burrell, and we had a good chat when I was down in London the other, the other uh, couple of weeks ago. And we just got each other because we got her yeah. on the same. And, and he said, I've not met anybody that got her like I got her. Yeah. A lovely lady. Yeah. And you spent, what, a couple of weeks on, uh, a couple of weeks on the yacht in Saint-Tropez in, 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 in the July? No, in the, in the villa complex. Yeah. Uh, on land, mm. although when we went out on the boat, as the first day, two days, there was no paparazzi, nothing. Nobody knew she was there uh, from from the media. And then two pats came over and tried to get on the beach, and we stopped them. And uh, well, it wasn't; it was a paparazzi and a minder. So, so they were getting really aggressive to get onto the beach yeah. to find out what, what was happening, and. Uh, we sorted them out <laughs> and they said, they said, right, we're going to tell everybody now they'll all come. Yeah. I thought, yeah, right. Oh my God. Yeah. Next day, mate. Bloody hell. They were going to come anyway. Yeah. Yeah. There was hundreds and hundreds of them. Yeah. And, and at that time, some of the photographs were reported to have been sold for over a million. Wow. There was helicopters going over. Yeah. There was bolts out there, so we just couldn't do anything, you know. And, and we then started to make strategies that we could get onto a boat yeah. or go somewhere and, and give the family and the princess and the princes a couple of hours of quality time yeah. before they found out where, where we were. So it was a bit of a cat and mouse, uh, although there's no running around or speeding or anything like that because, you know, a lot of people don't understand in, in the world of bodyguards and things like this, if you drive fast, you're going to drive into trouble quickly. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, everyone's conscious of um, safety mm. as well. Uh, yacht came, yacht comes first. And what was it like for you being on the yacht? I've seen all the photos of you with Princess Diana and, and the boys and stuff. Did you uh, earn 20, uh, 200 quid off uh, Prince Harry? Yeah, yeah. It, 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 was, it, was, it was cheeky boy, you know. <laughs> and, and, and he's a great kid. He reminded my boy a lot. You know, like a little uh, uh, free child. Yeah. Whereas William was the opposite. He was like a real considerate and caring type. Yeah. But Harry was just great. I loved him. Um, I taught him how to shoot his jet bike round with the water going out the back and spray <laughs> the paparazzi with it. And he loved that. 
So he said to me, we're right on the top of, of the boat, and he said, uh, it was at night, it was dark, and we're in harbour in in Cannes. And he said, uh, Lee, how much would you jump off the top of this boat for? And I went, no, I, I won't jump off. It's how much money. I said, give, uh, give me 200 quid. It was just a, a comment. Yeah. Didn't think anything about it. And all of a sudden, I heard this, Lee. And I'm like, who's that? And it was the princess. She says, you've just said you'd jump off there for 200 quid. And I said, yeah, I'm just having a good job. She said, I've got the money from Mohammed. <laughs> oh, shit. So now I've got to jump off. Yeah. In all my stuff, and I thought for 200 quid, it was a couple of quid then, wasn't it? <laughs> And uh, I, I jumped off, came out drenched. I was like, "Mind you, I got my two hundred quid." So, <laughs> and what was it? What was it like? Could you really tell that uh, Princess Diana was in love with Dodie? Yeah, it's one of those things because we didn't know then what we know now, right? And also, as well, this is interesting. You know, Dodge, and you know this more than a lot of people. People make opinions of you and other people because of what they read in the papers, right? What they read in the papers is the opinions of those papers and those reporters. So, but at that time, it, it was a blank canvas. And for us and for me and the security team, it was just two young people who had met and were having a summer romance, yeah. full stop. Where it was going to go, we just didn't know. You know, we, we speculated, but they just looked like two people having a great time. Dodie was the happiest I've seen him. Yeah. She was extremely happy and comfortable in his in his company. Yeah. It was all good at that time. Mm. And when you when you were on the yacht at that time, obviously where all the press were taking photos of you guys, obviously Versace got murdered. Mm. How was Princess Diana when she heard that news? So we were we he got murdered. It was, it was you know it was at the time it was a massive shock in the world. So we were talking about it, and it and it looked like at that time. It was some kind of hit on him. It was a professional hit. It turned out it was something slightly different. But uh, so we'd been talking about it over breakfast. And then I'd gone onto the Jonicle, onto the to the boat. We were we were going out somewhere along the coast. And so I'd gone on and I was trying to find a security cabin there. We had a cabin somewhere allocated to us. So you get changed and you know, there's kit in there and stuff. And I was going to pick up some stuff. And I, and I walked into her right at the front of the boat where it's just all glass. And and she was looking out the window. So I walked in and I was like, whoa, this, it isn't in here. And she turned around and she was obviously crying and very upset. And well, she was crying, but you could tell she'd been crying a lot. And and, and she, she said, asked me, had I heard about her friend? And, and I said, yes, I had. And we had a discussion about it. And, you know, what do you think happened? And I said, oh, I don't know, but you know, obviously the police will find out. And I'm just trying to comfort her and she was coming close to me and you know and that you, you know you know because I'm, I'm that kind of person you know you just want to give someone a hug yeah, yeah. you know they want a hug yeah. and she wanted to feel safe i, I didn't do it I, I would never do that by the way but not when i was working but it crossed my mind and i thought if a paparazzi got a photograph through that glass of this mm. can you imagine what they would write mm. it wouldn't be bodyguard comforts princess diane in a moment of need you know what they would write yeah. don't you yeah absolutely and i was like so I, i'm stepping back and and she said do you think they'll do that to me oh. meaning yeah. the establishment because we had spoken about that kind of thing you know during our chats and uh, and i said look 
you know, you, you're with one of the most professional security teams in the world here. We'll, we'll look after you. And, and, she, and she said, yeah, I know, I know. I do feel safe. And, and then I said, look, I've got, I've, I've got to go. Please excuse me. And I, and, I, and I made a quick exit, you know. But, yeah, she was very, well, she was extremely upset. Mm. So, and she was concerned about her, her own safety yeah. as well, you know. Yeah. That feeling for Princess Di must be awful, knowing the concern for her own safety everywhere she goes. I know. It's... Uh, and she couldn't do right for doing good, you know, Dodge. She, this is, this is, there's a, there's a few things, you know, that, that even now trouble me. But what, what, what she did is we had a discussion on the beach and she said, look, I know how to get the paps away. We can try it. It generally works. She said, you tell me where we're, when we're going somewhere or you, or you want some space. I'll tell them that I'm doing a photo shoot. They'll take the photos, she said, and then they'll leave. And that's what we did. Yeah. And that's what she used to do. And they used to leave, and they'd all go down the, the bars, get pissed. Yeah. And we do it every day. Now, that's a, that's a fair, and she she didn't like doing it, but she said, I, I, I feel like I'm really imposing on the on the children, the fire children as well, and I'm ruining the holiday. So, you know, this is, you know, I'm going to try and make it right. So, so the, the, Papers the next day, the headline, look at Diana lapping it up. She loves all the attention and all that. And you're like, you bastards. Yeah. She, and, and, but she, she was used to it. We weren't. And, and you know what, Dodge? I saw f- photos of me on Sky TV. It was everywhere then, uh, plastered everywhere. And uh, so there'd be pictures of, of us or me with the princess. And all the background was photo shops i don't know if they used to use them what yeah. application and then there was this story which never happened yeah that's mad isn't it's awful it? isn't it living your life like no, that no awful mm. so so this is, so this is like uh late july mid july late july two weeks in central mm. prairie with with uh, princess mm. Di. how come you didn't how come you weren't there on the night in paris what happened was one of the lads kez wingfield great guy kez ex-royal marine he was on a boat and we put him into isolation because he had like the, the flu. Yeah. So we put him into isolation so he didn't spread it. So he's on this boat and we have to draw straws to see who's going with Trevor Reese Jones, the lad that was in the, the car. Yeah. Very, very good friend of mine. I spoke to Trevor the other day, actually. And I think there's about six of us. So one of the lads who was uh, in charge of the residential team at the time, an ex-SAS uh, guy, fantastic bloke, he, he got a load of straws and he snapped one. I think the matches, actually. And we all drew out. And one of the lads drew the short straw. And he says, I guess that's Kez's then. And we went, roger that. Yeah. And that was it. So we said to Kez, look, we all drawn, mate. You've drawn the short straw. He was fuming. <laughs> Because he didn't want to go, because we were, we knew it was going to be a taxing job. Yeah, you know, late nights, early mornings, yeah. and you know, I, I've been home from some of these gigs, you know, and I've slept for nearly three days solid. Yeah, you know, and I don't sleep a lot, but I'm just so mentally and physically exhausted, you know. Mm. And where were you on the night that Princess Diana lost her life? Yeah, it's it's like a JFK moment, isn't it, for older you know older people? Yeah. Um, so I was cleaning up after a barbecue. I, I, um, I don't, people around to my house, my family and friends and stuff, and I was just cleaning up, and I just had Sky TV on, and I heard it on Sky. And I went to my phone, 
and I see I've missed a load of calls from the operations room. So I I called the ops room and found out what was going on, packed my bag, because I figured I'd, I'd be called in. And so I was, I was I was about an hour ahead of the whole world and what was happening, you know. And, and my concern, obviously, I knew Dodie was dead, which was upsetting. I knew the princess was still alive. I knew the driver was dead and I knew Trevor was in a really bad state. So I was really concerned for Trevor as well. And, and I'd worked with Trevor for years and years, you know, lived with him, worked with him. So when you lose a friend or you think you're going to lose a friend like yeah. that, it's, it's a very upsetting time, yeah. isn't it? Who, whose responsibility is it for something like that as a bodyguard that you're in the car on making sure they wear a seatbelt? Yeah, it's, it is, this is the question, the million-dollar question, isn't it? When I drove Dodie, he wore his seatbelt, and I told him in no uncertain terms he would wear his seatbelt. And I wasn't frightened about going and calling Mr. Fired. Yeah. Uh, it didn't bother me at all, and the family knew that. And I think that's why I got on with all the family, because I was really straight, and, and I worked for him. Mm. And their safety was my concern. So with Dodie, he tried it on with me. He hated wearing his seatbelt, you see. He spent a lot of time in the States, and as you know, out yeah. there in Los Angeles, and that's about that time he didn't wear. And uh, so I, I get the first time I meet him, I get him in the car, in, in, the, in one of the armoured vehicles. And he says, come on, drive, I've got to get there. He was late for, he was late for an appointment. That's why I was driving him. It was a big family gathering at, in London, so I can't remember where. And he missed the convoy that we went out on, so I'm waiting for him. He says, come on, I'm, I'm late. I said, yeah, yeah, I, I know you're late. I said, but you've got to put your seatbelt on. He said, I don't wear seatbelts, I'm not putting it on. I said, no, you, you've got to put your seatbelt on, I'm not driving the car. And so he starts raising his voice a little bit, and I said, right, Mr. Dodie, the next thing I'm going to do is call your father. And he went, right, shit, <laughs> put the seatbelt on. And every time I drove him, when he saw me, yeah. he went straight on. Yeah. So so I had a biggie about that because Mr. Fired did. He was it, One of his rules were, if I catch you with a member of the family without a seatbelt on, I'll sack you. Yeah. That's how much it meant to him, the safety of his kids, kids and his family. So with, with Dolly and Trevor... Now, things change now. The, the guys are knackered. They're doing 18-hour days. They're tired. Yeah. They're, it's late at night. The paps are everywhere. There's cameras going on. And it could be that Trevor just missed it. Yeah. You know, and, and you get all these, these professionals in, in my industry, and they're all experts, all of them. And everybody knows how to do the job better than anybody else. It's, it's quite a strange industry, the course protection industry. But you can't call it unless you were there at the time. Should they have the seatbelts on? Yes. Should Trevor have made sure they put them on? Yes. That's us being rational now in a rational environment. But, you know, the guy's hanging out his ass. Yeah. You know, he's tired. He's probably just about keeping awake, you know. And, and so these accidents happen, right? And it was you, – you can't doubt his professionalism. Trevor was a very, very professional guy. Yeah. But you don't know – what pressures he, were on, he was under at that time, mm. you know. There's a lot of conspiracy theories out there. I don't know which one to believe. What, what, what are your thoughts? Do you think she was murdered or do you think she with the motorbikes knocked her off the road? Do you think it was all set up? I don't think it was set up. Uh, whether it was an accident involving another vehicle, pe- people make it their lives, these conspiracy the- theories. And a conspiracy theory, it could actually be the truth. It's only a conspiracy theory because it's not been proven. Yeah. In, in anything. So so with with this, I think it was an accident. I think the, the French uh, made a mess of it all. 
and they, and they did that many things wrong. When you when you look back at the chain of events, you're like, hang on, this was all covered up. I think I think it was just um, lack of professionalism. I think either our security services and our intelligence services were there at the time, or the French were, or a combination of the two, and so they should be. You know, we have the best security services in the world, um, in, in my opinion, that look after us all the time, you know, and we should be very proud of them. But I think what's happened is somebody somewhere said, we can't seem be seen to be there. And there, so there was some small irregularities and it, and then it's just caused a catalogue of reasons why people th- can make jump to these assumptions, yeah. you know, and and I think whoever was in that tunnel on from the security services, they know exactly what happened. Wow. I personally think it's an accident. I think it might have clipped something, or um, something's gone wrong because uh, the driver yeah, he was driving fast. You know, you, you can see it's not it's not it's not a, the hazardous road. He's driving fast. He was twice over the limit. So some toxicology reports say. And there's people that would contest that and say it was less. Um, there was no, it was it was said to be an alcoholic. There was no booze found in his house, in his small flat, like a bottle of champagne or half a bottle of something that he didn't drink. Two or three days later, the police go back again and find enough booze to stock a, a small bar. Yeah. And, and how they missed it first time. And the policeman actually says it could have been put there after. Yeah. So all these little things... You're thinking, that's why I think it might have, the vehicle might have clipped another vehicle. Mm. What it was doing there, I don't think we'll ever know. No. But I do think there are people that do know. Yeah. But I, I, I do think it's an accident. Like, all we've seen on the press over the years now is the, the guys on the motorbikes, papping, taking photos, taking more photos, getting in the way. Where are those guys? The actual, so there were some high-powered motorbikes that were reportedly seen going in. Yeah. And... Never found, and the car that was seen to have gone in never found. the The security cameras on the tunnel were, were turned off, um, and this is where people start going, "Hang on, well they were turned off." Yeah. They cleaned the they cleaned the scene. They they did this, they did that. They took all that time to get it to the hospital. So when you when you think about it, you think, "Hang on, what's going on here?" So I get it. I get why people say she was killed, but I I don't think she was, and I don't think the British government would have any. Um, reason to do that and so I just think it was just a horrible accident but I think the bikes that went in those people on those bikes were security services yeah because we'd stopped a couple in Saint-Tropez and we'd had a face-to-face conversation like this and they were ex-military we spoke in ex-military terms and off they went they didn't have the cameras or anything and this is the thing you know Dodge when when we talked about this as a security team, I said, "Oh, I've, I've st- we stopped a couple of lads," uh, and I said who we thought they they were and which organisation they work with, and it was quite a comforting thing to to know that we had the British, we'll call it let's call it Secret Service, yeah. watching because we had people watching us, yeah, and if anything was going to go wrong, they would have told us. Mm. So it wasn't that we didn't like it I, I thought it was quite good that we had people there who were, who were almost like a little top cover for yeah. us so it wasn't an issue mm. do you not think it's crazy that they someone allowed someone who was half cut to drive the car that night 
Well, and this is the thing. The, the, there's an argument over the toxicology. And we can't, I don't even want to go into that, but I've spoken to Trevor and I spoke to Kez and both of them said that guy was not drunk. He didn't show any signs of being drunk. And when you see the videos of him, the behavioural experts that analyse this said there is no signs that that guy is under the influence of alcohol. Yeah. Crazy, isn't it? Yeah. I just don't get it. Mm. But, hey. What, what injuries, Lee, did, uh, did Trevor get? Oh, I think there were too many to list. He was just, he was just a broken man. You know, he's, everything was reconstructed. Uh, Mr. Fire paid for the best surgeons to do it, to help him, you know. Um, and I, I think the the mental injuries were probably as bad yeah. as the physical injuries, you know. And and when I took him to Doldy's grave, when he, he came, when he, when he finally could get out and about, and he came and I took him in a golf buggy on, on the fire estate in Oxted and... And I picked him up and almost carried him to the grave. Now, he was, he was my size, six yeah. foot two, yeah. you know, about 15 stone. And um, we used to share clothes as well because we used to work together. So he's yeah. suit to fit me, mine would fit him. So, so we're about my size. And he was like picking up a little baby. He was yeah. he lost that much weight. And it was like oh, horrendous to see this stumbling, you know, he's an ex-paratrooper, fit yeah. guy. And it was just a broken man. Mm. You know, it was horrible to see. But, but thank God uh, he's, he's made a, f- a recovery and he does extremely well now in mm. his business. So he's doing really well. From all you've seen over the years with the paparazzi with Princess Di, do you think it was a good move for Meghan Markle and Prince Harry to get out of the country? Um, I do, yeah, I do. I think the paps, and they just don't cut anybody any slack here. And... It's always the negative side, isn't it? And somebody said to me the other day, they said, oh, they're giving Meghan, Meghan Markle a hard time. I don't read the newspapers, don't yeah. watch the news, uh, after my experiences with with the paps and that. But, um, and I said, what on earth are they giving a hard time for at the funeral? And she said, uh, she was wearing the wrong shoes. And I said to this, this lady, out of all that funeral, the most amazing, spectacular, saddest time, they're going on about a pair of bloody shoes. Yeah. What? How can people allow that to happen? Yeah. It's mad, isn't it? Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah, and I don't know the story. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not really interested. Yeah. But but uh, how about, you know, reporting on, you know, the good things that happened. Mm. The princes were talking and, and Meghan was actually there. Mm. And, you know, celebrate that. But mm. why doesn't good news sell in this country, man? Yeah. It's wild, isn't it? Crazy. Wild. Tell me about the lovely letter that Princess Di wrote you after your uh, two-week trip with with her and the boys. Yeah, yeah. What a a thoughtful thing to do, you know, for such a busy person. She had time to write a letter. It was was probably one of the last letters ever signed by her and the princes. And it was just thanking me for looking after them during their stay. And she said she appreciated all the hard work that their presence had caused and she was just apologising for it and thanking me. Wow. How thoughtful was that? Amazing. amazing. That's incredible, isn't it? That's absolutely amazing. Incredible. And it just it just shows you what kind of a woman she was. And irrespective of what the paps and the papers said about her and all this shit they, they wrote about her, the reason why people loved her all over the world is because she was an amazing human being. Yeah. Why didn't they print all that stuff? Yeah. 
You know, it's crazy, isn't it? It is a shame, a massive shame. Mm. But uh, Lee, I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. Don't jump, I've really, really enjoyed chatting to you. And tell um, us about your book. Yeah, so the book, I've written the book, the book has gone insane. Number one bestseller on Amazon. Uh, it's gone really, uh, it's gone crazy. My ghost writer, Howard Linsky, a fantastic writer. So they can get the book on Amazon uh, and you get the audio as well. Um, and there's a great guy done the audio. So, and then they can find me. I'm currently working in Spain yeah. on, on a big project there where I took, uh, I took a multimillionaire on a close protection course for a bit of fun. And he said to me, Lee, I have never experienced anything like this in my life. He said, you've got to put these events on. So we've created a red letter day experience. Uh, so people can come along and I take them over a period of days and we teach them how to be a bodyguard. So we have <laughs> explosions, smoke, guns. We teach them how to shoot. They're in and out of cars. And uh, and we give them this massive experience. So that's the project I'm really focusing on now for the next couple of years. And it's in Alicante in Spain on this beautiful training area. We've got massive. We've got a killing house. We've got everything there. <laughs> and we're just going to give people this massive experience. Yeah. So they'll go away with the biggest adrenaline rush of their lives, but also with skills that they can then, you know, translate into their, their own lives or their children's or whatever. So the skills that you learn on it, the awareness skills and the and the close quarter combat skills and stuff like this, it's very transferable into mm. normal life. So mm. um, I'm, I'm super excited. Lovely. About Good for you, mate. Tell us the name of your book, Lee, and where can they get you on Instagram? I'm on Insta, just banging my name, and that's where I am. And yeah, I said the book, it's on Amazon. A lot of the bookstores have issues with their distribution at the moment. Yeah. I didn't know that. I don't know this world. So the, the easiest place to get it is on, on Amazon. And the name of the book? The Bodyguard. The Bodyguard. Love it. Absolutely love it. Lee, you've been an absolute superstar, mate. Thoroughly enjoyed our Cheers, conversation, mate. bud. Okay. Yeah. Enjoy talking to you, pal. Good man. Take care, mate. Take it easy, mate.